that just got to get ready for the migraine that is Matt Jackson. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> that was mean. Damn, he's going low below today. It's first thing in the morning, man. Come on. I mean, first thing. I've been up since 530. God dang. I went just, to sleep at like 530. Why? No, I'm just kidding. It was like 4, 334. Couldn't sleep, dude. I just was laying there like, come on. No. I don't know. Get a sleeping pill or something. What do you think what I'm doing right now? <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> okay, that was pretty good. Ranking 76, where we review and rank the heroes and villains of the American West. I am Eric. I'm Matt. And we have a big name today. We just went through Cochise. Geronimo! It is. Are you going to explain today why people say that? Is that, is that, that's because of him, right? You know, when they jump off like a huge cliff or something, like Geronimo. I didn't, I didn't really look that up, but if. If I can try to rack my brain, I think it was from like World War One or two. Uh, they used his name as like we're going to charge and we're going to attack, mm. and then okay. somehow it it translated to people jumping <laughs> off of cliffs. <laughs> Quite the leap, kind of, but you know, it, it happened. Uh, no maybe pun intended, that... right? <laughs> <laughs> I see, but yeah, I mean, maybe that's true. There's. So there's people that know much more about World War One and Two than I do. So if I got that wrong and that's just an urban legend, that's fine. It didn't seem to pertain to Geronimo. For whatever reason, my curiosity didn't look that up. So I have plenty on the first guy. So as promised, uh, it's going to be a two-part episode. Only because there's, there's some rehash from Cochise's episode that we need to go into further detail on. That really sets up the second episode and rather than just get everyone lost into one incredibly long somewhat vague one episode i just figured it would be easy to break up into a second one so we're doing it we're doing it so this is probably the first like episode that's really benefited from our non-two-week uh release because i i did not like this episode up until about three days ago when i like kind of re redid it and then put the finishing touches on yesterday. So I'm hoping, hoping it makes a lot more sense and I hope it's better than what, what I originally had written. Not that any of you would know no. what I had. So, it's never going to be an air cut is what you're saying. God forbid that this brain <laughs> is a scary place. Nobody wants the air cut. So we're actually going to start off with, um, I, I have a correction because I goofed up. Not really bad, but I think you asked how many Apaches were in the area, and I think I said a couple thousand per band. So, and I think I estimated like 21,000. Holy cow, was I off, because I looked up the number. The total number of the Apache is only about 3,000. They're very, very small. That's it, huh? 
That's it. So we're talking only a couple hundred per band, not a couple thousand. So for anyone that caught that, that thinks I'm an absolute fraud, well, I can't please you anyway. So, But there is my correction. They're not that big. So which makes what Cochise did even more impressive when he controlled the territory for basically a year. I'll fight you on that point that you didn't think was that good. It's fine. I'm not bitter about it. Why would I be bitter about it? Okay. Geronimo was actually born under the name Goyhakla, and I know I mispronounced that, and I'm very sorry to those who speak Apache. His name roughly translates to, do you want to take a guess? Sitting alone? I don't know. what. I mean, the sound you make was close. Uh, it stands for, possibly stands for, the one who yawns. Oh. Hey, I was close. I said the one who sits, so. You're close. You're also, the sound <laughs> you made was almost like a snore. Yeah. I, bro- I breathed in with my nose. You sure did. So, yeah, I, uh, we've had some cool names. This isn't one of them. <laughs> it's... But it's fine. Maybe he will have some time to make up for his really lame name. All right. Anyway, he is born of the Badonkae tribe in maybe 1823. But again, there's some debate. The Apache don't like to dwell on the past a whole lot. He was born on the headwaters of the Gila River near the modern day borders of New Mexico, Mexico, and then also Arizona. His father, Tashlahim, or the Gray One, and his mother was named Juana. Her English name is lost to history. They just know her by her Mexican name. He is born into a tribal. He's born into a family. His grandfather used to be a chief. For whatever reason, and I couldn't quite look this up, he was never really in line to become a chief, which makes me think the the position isn't hereditary like it is in some tribes. It's just more who is the best like who's, who's the, best the most um, qualified, kind of? Essentially. But there is kind of like royal blood, I guess, if you want to call it that. Just know he uh, he isn't it. There is some debate in his autobiography. I believe the person who first translated or switched uh, transcribed his autobiography said that because his mother was not a Badanke, he basically forfeited his right as a tribal chief. But that has been debated. Who knows why? I think we'll have a pretty good understanding by the end of the second episode. Why he was never a chief? Well, he was a war chief, but never like a chief chief. Right. That makes any sense. Growing up, Geronimo would have played games to help him train like raiding and warfare like we've seen in other tribes. A mentor, or in this case, his father, would be assigned to him and help him transition from child to warrior. Other than the typical chief teachings at the Apache trained extensively in endurance mentors at one occasion i believe i talked about this briefly in cochise's episode in one way to help train them they would place a stone or sometimes they would put water in the mouths of the young warriors and then make them run across a vast distance over rocky steep terrain and they had to come back with the stone either still in their mouth or the water still in their mouth to prove that they ran the entire time Without breathing through their by breathing through their nose, I would not want to do the rock. Can you imagine if you tripped? Oh, it'd be terrible. Well, I think they put it underneath their tongue, which again is even more uncomfortable. That would hurt. 
Yeah, it'd be terrible because like when you think of it, you can't like you'd almost like choke on your tongue trying to breathe. And so, yeah, it's the nose completely. Man. It just sounds terrible. How far did they run? Uh, miles. I'm like miles, five, six, seven, depending on how young you were. You went a while. Can you imagine if you spit, if you were the one that like swallowed the water or like spit out the rock or like somehow cheated? Like, can you imagine the, <laughs> the absolute beating you were going to get? You just spit it in your hand and you're running, trying to not spill any. <laughs> it's like the peanut butter eggs on the spoon thing trying to walk, but you get caught. Also, let's not remember or let's not forget. This is the Apache. They're not peaceful. Wait, hold on, hold on. Time out, time out. What about peanut butter on a spoon? Well, you ever seen like it's like one of the when you're a kid, you put the spoon, you put the egg on the spoon mm-hmm. and then you walk it, you know, as far as you can. And, you know, yeah. And you try and not get it to drop and break. Well, you can cheat by putting some peanut butter on the spoon. So the egg who cheats at that game. I've never heard of the way to cheat. Although, uh, to be fair, I've never played that game. So it's not uncommon. I used to ride horses in rodeos. And that when I was like, yeah, no, weird. you are um, lying. Oh, I'm serious. I wouldn't exactly call them rodeos, but horse shows. We'll call them horse shows. And that was one of them. You'd have the it was a pretty big, uh, pretty big spoon. But yes, you had the egg and you had to ride your horse. and You had to just go around the, the right. Yeah. Uh, you're going to have to send me pictures of you and your little cowboy attire. <laughs> uh, there was no cowboy attire. There's a ribbon. I don't think there's any pictures that survive, but I got a ribbon for third place out of three. <laughs> you win no matter what. Hey, that's the the ultimate consolation prize, okay. right? <laughs> well, they they had. Well, I'm assuming this is before the uh, participation trophies. So they, uh, I think they just had a third ribbon and they just wanted to hand it out. It's like the other day when I I did a for Christmas. I did like a 10k, and it was like. Uh, I get second in my age group and everyone was like, what out of two? And I was like, no, turns out there was six. So ha. Take that. <laughs> ha. Hey, first time you've ever been in the top third. Congrats, man. <laughs> Always got to throw in just a little insult or whatever. <laughs> Especially no, that was, you. that was the first time. That's the thing. <laughs> Did they did they do something like that um, with the running, or was it just finish, or were they just looking more of it as considered training, where they were oh, it's, running? It's training. They did play other games, so that would help them play. Like we've seen hide and seek before, but the Apaches just took it to a different level. Now Geronimo would talk in his autobiography, and I'm going to probably say that phrase probably too much in this episode, but he he would talk about he would hide from his mother. And they were so serious about, like, not being found. They would wait for their parents to go to bed before they came out. Come eat, honey. He's hiding behind, like, hiding on the roof, you know, with his hands spread out, (laughs) just holding the... Like Batman. So, you know, it's kind of a spoiler whenever someone creates an autobiography, because that tells me they just make it. (laughs) Yeah. Cause they're not gonna, they're not gonna just what right before they die, just really quick scribble out an autobiography. Uh, U.S. Grant did that. President Grant, he was basically dying. He needed to make money for his family, and he did that. It's one of the oh, best dang. memoirs ever written. I love that. I love Geronimo. Also, uh, Geronimo's memoir. It's honest, 
but it's very self-serving. Right. He made himself look real good. Or he would just not mention some very big points that we're going to talk about in the second episode. He just so how did we? How did history get that? Those accounts. I mean, you have other sourcing. You also have other Apache. Okay. Other, you know. So did lesser did lesser Apache like ones that maybe were never like famous famous? They wrote their own stories too. I mean, you have interviews, you have, I mean, because, I mean, we're not giving anything away. When they're on the reservation, they're going to have a bunch of newspaper men asking questions about Geronimo. Oh, and, and about their life and stuff. Yeah. And plus, Geronimo would give interviews himself. He just wouldn't, in his own autobiography, he just never, he just skipped those parts. So. Also, going back to the... uh the hide and seek thing where he, he waits till the parents go to bed. I love the fun. Like maybe it was very obvious where the children were hiding and the parents were just like, well, I have a couple hours by myself now. <laughs> right. Oh, thank That's a great way. I mean, if they're going to do that, that's a great way to get some peace and quiet. <laughs> when he was on the hunt, he would obviously go for small game at first, and then he would go for larger game. However, when he made his first kill, just like Cochise, he would be expected to tear the heart out of the poor animal and then eat it completely raw to ensure future success. When they would hunt rabbits, this actually, this is not as gruesome. This is just sounds kind of fun. When they would hunt rabbits, they would actually ride up on their horses and scoop it up with their bare hands with a club or with a club which apparently was a great sport when they were small children and Geronimo just liked doing it. But I do like the, the thought of, you know, a kid just scooping up a rabbit, this poor rabbit being with a club, terrified. sometimes with a club, sometimes with their hands, like they'd scoop it up with a club, with a club. How the heck do you do that? I mean, I'm sure there was like a little bit of a, not to keep talking about spoons, but probably just <laughs> a little pivot. Little bit of a little scoop on the end, and that rabbit either got launched or it got picked up. Unfortunately for Geronimo, and like so many figures we have covered, his father dies of an illness when he's 10 years old. Pretty common, doesn't really exist, doesn't really say what he died of. Probably, I mean, tuberculosis, cholera, you take your pick. But yes. Meaning Geronimo is now going to have to be given another mentor. Now, it isn't truly known who it is, but it was likely an uncle. Very possibly, and the slimmest of possibilities, it was Mangus Coloradus. Mangus! So he's popping up once again. I don't necessarily believe that because he, he was a very busy man. I don't know if he would have time to mentor a young, a young Geronimo, but it sounds nice. It's a name we all know. have been with, uh, what's his name? Coaches. Not necessarily because they're different bands. The Apache do a lot of intermingling or never talk to each other. I don't know. They're a very fluid oh, so tribe. He was with Mangus. Yeah. Well, him and Mangus are going to become very close in the very near future. So it's okay. not impossible. This is just kind of the origin story. Okay. It doesn't really, I mean, obviously it affected Geronimo in a severe way. It was his father that died, but he doesn't ever talk about it because, again, the Apaches just don't talk about people who have died because of death taboos. But he spends more time in his autobiography talking about hunting buffalo 
and now we thought buffalo were easier to kill than deer because deer, deer required them to sneak up on them and so on and so forth but by the end of his life geronimo could brag that he was a good enough hunter that he had killed not only a mountain lion but a bear with only a bow and arrow and a spear which is pretty intense for a teenager essentially bear was probably pretty small in sleeping <laughs> well, where's your sense of drama it was obviously a grizzly bear it was that one from red dead redemption 2 you haven't played that yet giant it's just huge has a big scar on its face probably insulted his mother it was a real <laughs> despicable bear is what i'm trying to tell you so but in order to be considered a man hunting wasn't enough he would have to be he would have to go on four different raids before he could be considered a man. He first volunteers for his raid when he's 17 years old. Now again, little detail is known, but it can be assumed if you go with other Apache stories that Geronimo would be given a very strict set of rules as a young warrior. You didn't talk unless you were talking to. You were given the food that the other warriors allowed you to have. Should you be given a chance to go into the raid, you had to follow very strict instructions or basically the raid wouldn't count. You'd have to do it over again if they would let you become a warrior. He obviously had to distinguish himself because he goes on his four raids really by the time he's 18 years old. Finding his newfound manhood in his tribe, he spends no time wasting to find his wife in fact he already has one in mind her name is alope and it is widely believed by historians that alope may have been the love of his life Aww. so it's nice so when he goes up to his future wife he said asked her father what i'd like to marry your daughter he says no you need to get an awful lot of ponies because i don't think you are par- i don't think you're worthy of her so go get me a lot of ponies i'll let you know when you have enough that's what he said? Essentially, well, not explicitly, but it's kind of speculated because it wasn't like there's a huge hierarchy in the tribe. So if right. the father's just saying, no, 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 you need to give me a much bigger dowry than you expect, it's probably not a good sign. But he does. Apparently, it only takes him a couple of weeks to round up, I'm going to assume, a couple dozen ponies. We kind of saw this with Crazy Horse. I'm just kind of basing it off that, that he had to steal quite a few. Mm-hmm. But eventually he gets it, or? He does, and really, um, he just hands the ponies over, and he was, the father was like, well, okay, guess you're now married, and then he just moves in with the family, and that's all the ceremony they needed. So they move in with the wife's family? I believe so. That does sound right. Interesting. Maybe I have that reversed. I should really look that up because I didn't put that exact detail in. But yes, I believe he moves in with her family. And that's that's it. They're now married. If they want a divorce, just walk out the tent. Very quick. No, is that really? Yeah, like there's no, I mean, there's no Apache lawyers asking for uh, prenups or anything like that. He's not getting his do ponies I get back. ponies back? No, no, you do not. That is now her okay, father's. Okay, so it's a no, no, no refund, no refund. no. No, you're stuck with her, but he seemed generally happy. In fact, he called her, quote, a good wife, but she was never very strong. We followed the traditions of our fathers and were happy. Three children came to us, the children that played, loitered, and worked as I had done. So 
things are going pretty good. Wait, wait, wait. He said he said she was good, good, not great, is basically what he said. He said he, she wasn't strong. That doesn't mean she's not great. That just means maybe she just had trouble lifting things. Oh, yeah, things were good. Things were good. She's weak, but good. <laughs> good. I mean, when you say it like that. Well, but I mean, dang, in the love of his life, he's calling her weak. Come on. I Geronimo. mean, the way it's listed, it does seem kind of like a compliment sandwich. Like he was just trying to like slide in the little <laughs> right. the, the insult. She was a good wife, but she was never strong. And then we like follow the traditions of our fathers. Out. Yeah, right. it was very like mm, okay, maybe you have a point there. Maybe he was a bit. Uh, I want you to say a good, bad, good. Well, Geronimo, he well, he, this is as good as he gets. She was a good wife, but she was never strong. And then that's as positive as he gets. He's now anyway. Okay, okay. I see how he is now. Yeah. Oh, yo, you, we have so much to cover. But wait, there's more. <laughs> Plenty more. Geronimo was a typical Apache man through the 1820s and 30s, and as we saw in Cochise's episodes, there were raids on top of raids on top of more raids with the Mexicans, so on and so forth. The Mexicans start their bounty, their scout bounty system and encourage citizens to kill the Apache on site. Uh, John Johnson leads the leads into a Apache village and kills 20 with a cannon. We talked about this much in Cochise's episode, which is why I'm going over this very briefly. He, Geronimo isn't part of the tribe of that band of the Apache, so he hears of it. Um, but he's just kind of on the periphery for now. A treaty in 1842 stops the fighting for now. Geronimo is still only about 21 years old and only has about three years of fighting experience by the time the Kirker massacre happens. Do you remember James Kirker where he yep, got them he all would. drunk? Yep. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. He got them all drunk and then didn't he have men come in and they killed everyone? Yep. When they were Wasn't it like 40 or 50, some people they killed. It was higher than that. I believe eighties is what I remember. Oh, okay. The top I remember it being a quite a bit though. It's well, when anytime you massacre women and children, yeah, it's any five the is too much. Number gets high. Yeah, the number gets pretty, especially when they're drunk off of a party. James Kirker, you're not a good man. Geronimo is part of the reve- revenge parties, as you would imagine, and according to his biographer Robert Utley, he says he quote inflamed by their hatred of Sonora, the men recently cut down any Mexican who straight into their path and made out with any booty to appeal that appealed to them. The expedition of this magnitude proved a great opportunity for Geronimo to demonstrate his writing skills, his writing skills and cement his bond to Mangus Coloradus. So this is probably where the link where Mangus has. And now Geronimo, it's not really known uh, how good he's fighting is, but to get Mangus's attention, he had to have been pretty good. Right. <laughs> One of the raids on this warpath leads to a place called Pozo Hedonito, or Stinking Springs. A Mexican governor orders a colonel named Jose Maria Carrasco to lead approximately 50 men to encounter the Apache and push them back in in January 1851. Geronimo is with a group of warriors that is led by Mangus Coloradus and Cochise, so already pretty good company. The Apache had been busy and had been traveling with about 
350 cattle and up to 1,000 horses. These Apache have been very busy just taking whatever they like from Mexican ranchers. Also, army pack trains. It is here where the Mexicans open fire and take the Apache by surprise as they're traveling. As the Mexicans open fire, the Apaches are overwhelmed at first and look for defensive positions. But after minutes of an intense firefight, the Apache are able to regroup and formulate a plan and start using the Mexicans' aggressiveness to their own advantage. They lure the Mexicans into an Apache ambush, and as the Apache ran to the Mexicans in a zigzag pattern, so again, as they're baiting them in, the Mexicans are now in the ambush, and now the Apache are now coming to charge them. But they're not coming at them straight. They're running at them in a zigzag pattern, like you're running right, away from a calculator. Something that's zigging and zagging. And apparently this freaked the Mexican soldiers out. <laughs> what, zigging and zagging? Zigzag. I, I don't know what the intimidate. I'm assuming between the war whoops and the I don't know when to shoot. Like, I'm sure it was unnerving seeing a bunch of them just running towards them. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's not great. Also, the Apache do outnumber the Mexican soldiers. There's only about 50 of them. I can't remember how many Apaches there were, but I believe it was a couple hundred to 50. Well, keep in mind, they're also watching 350 cattle and a thousand head of horses. So it takes, takes a few men. It takes, yeah, quite a few. So did they kill all the Mexicans then? Well, let's talk about it. (laughs) Now, when they run in the zigzag pattern, they're shooting their arrows and their pistols. Well, eventually the Apache pistols and their bows run out of ammo. But now they're close enough to the Mexicans where they start using their knives. And in short, the Apache overrun the Mexicans. Geronimo would recall during the battle that he fought with a fury and that many had died by his hand. Now, I cannot stress enough just how brutal this fighting was. We're talking fighting with knives and bayonets. This is close hand-to-hand fighting. Geronimo would talk about after the war, after the battle, that you could only hear Apache war whoops and that the battlefield was just covered in blood. Damn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When the Apache fight, they mean it. They're not just... They're, they're not just, just out like, to kill everyone, huh? Yeah, there's uh, no prisoners taken. Now, the Apache, believing they had just won a great battle, believe the fight is over, and they leave to head back home and to continue life as they could. What they underestimated, however, was that Colonel Carrasco really wanted his revenge because he looked real dumb attacking the Apache at Stinking Springs. What was his name? Colonel Caracas? Carrasco. That just sounds like a bad, like a bad B movie. Colonel Carrasco's revenge. What happens when one man seeks revenge on an entire nation? After he was an idiot and <laughs> led fifty men into a man bush, he led his men to die. Now he's out for revenge. Will he succeed? Probably not. <laughs> he doesn't survive, does he? Oh, he survives because he actually ambushes the Apache camp. Without the Apache warriors there. (laughs) Uh, 
no, 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 no. The women and children are oh, there. Oh, no, no. I yeah. take back my laugh. No. Yeah, there's, there's the proper. I was about to say, you maniac. <laughs> no, I thought he, I, I was, I was picturing uh, like a whole bunch of people charging into an empty village and with like tumbleweeds rolling in. No. Dude, he no, kills because... all the women and children? Uh, not all of them. He takes uh, 60 something captive, uh, but he does kill 16 men, five women, and then take the rest as children. Uh, the 16 that are dead actually get off lucky because the intention of the women and children were to be sold off into slavery. Now, when, uh, oh, you never mind. You answered my question into slavery. I was going to say, did they ship them off in like, uh, what's it called? I can't, uh, the name, the, the terms escaping me. Is it naturalization think- where they turn like teach, start teaching him like, christianity and not yet also the mexicans are just uh very blood not i shouldn't say the mexicans are bloodthirsty the blood the mexicans are just shoot to kill remember the scalp bounty oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. there's they have well, i want nothing to do they with want this money tribe. uh they want the apache to go away gotcha is what they want so yeah um geronimo would recall waiting until nightfall and then they sneak past into the village together to gather their dead. And as Geronimo went back into his lodge, he then realized his mother, his wife and his three children were part of the 16 that were killed. No, his, his soulmate, his entire family is now all three of his kids, all three of his kids, his wife and his mother. No. He would recall, quote, there were no lights in the camp, so without being noticed, I silently turned away and stood by the river. How long I stood there, I do not know, but what I saw the warriors arranging for counsel, I took my place. Now, he does take some time to mourn, but not much. He... The Apache don't really dwell. I've already repeated that a couple of times, but on the dead, on the dead, but they don't even allow their possessions. Like to Apache tradition, he burned all of their possessions because they didn't, they thought like if, if they were killed, if when you die, you don't want people coming for your possessions because it's going to lead to obviously fighting things like that. So it's going to burn everything at once. Geronimo cuts his hair and then again joins his warriors and is ready to fight again. Now, when they f- they vote to fight, obviously, it's going to take a couple weeks to get up uh, to get the men gathered before they start going. In the meantime, Geronimo has some time to himself. Now, I couldn't really confirm when this happened, but a few different places did say it happens here. I have not talked much about Apache religion or Apache, I don't want to say mythology is what I'll call it. They believe in something called a power. Essentially, a power is, I don't want to say magic, but it's your gift. It is your talent, essentially, that you're given. Geronimo goes into the country and begins to cry when he is suddenly startled by a voice that tells him, quote, no gun will ever kill you. I will take the bullets from the guns of the Mexicans and I will guide your arrows. 
So there's Drunk. he's basically heard a voice that is like, you're good. You're not going to die. You're not going to die in battle ever. Which is a pretty nice power to have when you're constantly going to be fighting. Right. Hey, we just voted to go into battle. Don't worry. I got you. Yeah. And that was like his power. Yeah. Uh, so a power is a gift from their god, Yusin. And according to tribal member Robert, uh, Ho- I'm, I'm going to say his name wrong. I'm sorry, Robert. Uh, according to an Apache named Robert Hoses, quote, the concept of power is fundamental. Everybody acknowledges that somebody has a certain power, like the power of medicine, the power of healing, the power of uh, see, uh, the power of seed of feelings or something. Oh, if I'm going to read, read that again. I'm sorry. According to tribal member Robert Hausos, I'm sorry, I butchered his last name. The concept of power is fundamental. Everybody acknowledges that somebody has a certain power, like the power of medicine, the power of healing, or the power to see things far off into the distance. So essentially, it's their talent, but it's much more than talent. It is given to them. It is a gift from their gods. So many believe Geronimo's power kept him safe from bullets. One of his followers would say he could even stop the rain. It wasn't just Geronimo could stop Geronimo could stop the rain and he could stop time. Just freeze it, huh? Just stop, stop, whatever. Yeah, he could stop uh, basically the earth from spinning. We're going to get into that more into the next episode. You'll see what I'm talking about. But just know he is a special case in terms of getting his power. Now we need to go back onto the revenge path because now the Apache are ready to go storm Mexico. Mangus Coloradus and Cochise call the warriors together to plot their revenge through Geronimo. Now Geronimo isn't a chief. Geronimo is still fairly young, but because he was the most wronged, he was given the, the right to lead the final, to lead an attack. So because his entire family was wiped out, they as a tribe were like, you're going to lead us into this battle. Yes. Against everybody. Against the Mexicans. Now, it isn't, I don't, I couldn't find exactly where this battle happened, but they How find. How many was he me- leading? Ah, uh, not that many. It was only like a couple dozen, but that's, well, that's it. Many. I mean, yeah, because the Apache don't travel in huge bunches. Now we just said that there was a couple hundred warriors before that does do on raids, but these revenge raids were meant to be quick. Uh, hit them hard and then leave and scatter. Take some take some horses and some cattle if you can, but this is strict revenge. When they find an attachment of Mexican infantry, Geronimo orders that the Apache hide in some timber and lets and charge behind the Mexicans. Geronimo would later recall, quote, I thought only of my murdered mother, wife, and babies, of my father's grave and my vow of vengeance as I fought with fury. Many fell by my hand, and I constantly led the advance. Many braves were killed. The battle lasted two hours. At the end of the battle, it was Geronimo and only three warriors left. What? Yeah. A lot of bloodshed. Now, they believe they're the only survivors. They describe that they had no more arrows or spears, and that they had only used their knives in the last half of the battle until 
two soldiers approach. Two soldiers shot the Apaches to Geronimo's left and to his right. And then they continued to charge the Apaches. So now it's two on two. Geronimo would recall in his autobiography, my companion was struck down but with a saber. As I reached for the warriors, I seized a spear and turned. The one who pursued me missed and aimed and fell by my spear. With a saber, I bent, I bent over the troop who had killed my companion, and we grappled and fell. I killed him with my knife and quickly rose over his body, brandishing his saber, seeking all troopers to kill. There were none. He would then finally continue at the end of this battle that he, Geronimo, was covered with the blood of my enemies, still holding my conquering weapon, still hot with the joy of battle, victory, and vengeance. Everyone died but him. He was the only survivor, and he is quite literally drenched in the blood of his enemies. (laughs) Well, he had to... Holy moly. Could you imagine if both sides, two, two, one, two, like you look over at your enemy, you're like, crap, there's two of them and two of us. I mean, if you're the Mexicans and you have the, and you have the, the guns, you're thinking pretty good, but you don't realize that. I mean, Geronimo isn't a legend yet, but oof, that's a hell of a start. So outside of this story, it's hard to track where Geronimo exp- explicitly is over the next decade, though he is definitely raiding in Mexico. You just don't know exactly which raids he was part of. Is he another one of those, like his name's so big that they just associate him with every raid? Not yet. It's just, that's kind of the opposite. He's kind of a no name. They just know it's the Apache. They just don't know who Geronimo is yet. Especially to the Americans. The Americans have no clue who he is. They don't even know who Cochise is for now, like during this time. But as the Americans start moving into the territory, mainly miners starting to look for mineral uh, in the mineral fields, Cochise is about to enter the national stage. Now, we talked about it briefly in Cochise's episode that the battles between the Apache and the American miners are pretty brutal. And without saving, without telling you a lot of detail, trust me, there's a lot of really brutal detail. uh, Both sides would do unspeakable things, including poisoning their water, murdering women and children. And typically on the American side, they would take the women and children and they would, again, sell them into slavery. How wonderful. The Mexicans were doing that too, right? Yes. So it was basically, let's capture the native, let's capture any Apache we can, or women and children, and sell them into slavery. Yeah, why not make money for yourself as you're being a terrible person? Because, good golly, that's a good plan. Yeah, America, yay. It was a good plan if you're just looking at people as property. And they were. In the spring of 1861, uh, Felix Ward, do you remember Felix Ward? Mm. He was a small boy that was kidnapped. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He goes by a different name later in life, though. He does. He goes by Mickey Free. Mickey Free, He's small little Felix Ward. He is taken by the Apache, which leads to the Bascom Affair, where Cochise cuts the tent. Geronimo doesn't say much in the trouble, but he's not... 
really uh, there for the Cut the Tent event. But he does say that after this trouble, all the Indians agreed not to be friendly with the white men anymore. Naturally so. I wonder why. You know, just taking a man's wife and child for a person he did not kidnap. And never seen them um, again. Geronimo spends most of his time raiding deep into Mexico, still on a bloodthirst for them killing his family, as you would imagine. However, when Cochise cuts the tent, that does bring him closer to the American side. Part of that is because, one, it's a big event, but his relationship with Mangus, Coloradus, and then obviously Mangus's relationship with Cochise, brings him back. Now, Geronimo is injured at the time, so that also kind of helps him bring him up to speed. But it's not quite known how involved he was uh, in the like the early parts of the war. However, he was likely at Apache Pass mainly because of his relationship with Magnus. It's kind of hard to picture him not there. Speaking of Magnus, he is 70 years old and is looking for some peace. Geronimo and many others kind of tell him that maybe we shouldn't be making peace with the Americans. I don't think we can really trust them. And Geronimo and the Apaches are right when Mangus does go to Jack Swilling and Joseph West in 1862, where, if you remember from Cochise's episode, they murdered Mangus during the middle of the night, saying that he escaped three times. In the aftermath, and now without a chief for the time being, the Badankahe break up into three separate groups. Geronimo go joins the band with Cochise and a small, smaller chief named, I'm going to say who, but it's, it is spelled J-U-H. I've heard ho, I've heard who, I've heard ja. There's a couple different. I'm probably going to alternate between each one, but I'm going to say who for now. But just know uh, there's another up and coming chief. Now, Geronimo doesn't outright attack the Americans right away. You kind of get the feeling Cochise had him go into Mexico to keep gathering supplies, and Geronimo was just more than happy to do so because of his, obviously, his hate of the Mexicans. <laughs> so now we set the table. This is kind of where this is kind of where I added a lot of detail. Originally, when I wrote this episode, there wasn't, I was going to leave this part kind of brief, but it makes it very confusing for the second episode. So, for the rest of this episode, we're going to talk some politics and gesturing. <laughs> Yay! Aren't we, ex- aren't we politics, excited? Politics. <laughs> That's what we wanted to hear about. A big cluster. I should say it took me forever ever to write this section and i really hope i got it right because the apache and the americans have a really confusing relationship at this point now we're gonna go back unknown to the apache the newly elected president u.s grant has his very well-intentioned but incredibly flawed indian peace policy We know the Indian peace policy is basically gather them up on reservations. We're going to convert them to Christianity. We're going to turn them into Americans. By Americans, I mean we're going to basically turn them into white people. We're going to get rid of all of their traditions and cultures because they're heathens and all of that and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) 
<laughs> the policy from Grant goes over like a lead balloon, many believing that it is laughable, including the governor of Arizona and multiple newspapers in the area. When the governor of Arizona sends a letter to to Grant complaining about how the Apache constantly steal and kill, the Grant administrator administration sends out a man named Vincent Croyler. Talked about Croyler very briefly. I think you'll remember him in just a bit. Croyler's goal is to put all of the Apache onto one reservation called Canada Alamosa. But as soon as he steps onto the reservation, Croyler believes that the cost of the area would be too much to improve and that the area was too small. But instead, they should move them 70 miles northwest to a place called Tularosa Valley. should also be said that the area that originally was going to be given to the Apache in Canada, Alamosa, um, might have been the best farmland or grazing land. And 70 miles northwest in Tularosa Valley, it was kind of a mosquito-ridden, desperate, barren land that seemed to be more fitting. I'd choose that one. Yeah, wouldn't you? I think we all would. (laughs) Now, I'm not going to say Crowley was doing this so he could speculate the land when it turned into public domain, but I'm not saying that he wasn't doing that either. After Croy- after Croyler just leaves, he made his decision and he goes into another Apache reservation to go set that up. I'm sure he did a swell job with that one as well. Then we bring in Lieutenant Colonel George Crook to then hike to then get the Apaches all onto the reservation. Now Crook is a bit of a He's an it he's hard to peg because you get the sense he is legitimately a good dude, but he also really follow he takes his job very seriously and he's going to follow his orders. Now he is the classic if you do what I say, I'm gonna treat you well, you're gonna be treated with respect, and everything will be fine. However, if you don't do that. I'm going to hunt you down and I'm going to murder everything. So let's be, play nice, everybody. <laughs> yeah, everyone play nice. Also, uh, you have nine days to get on the reservation before you're considered hostile. So chop, chop, everyone. We need you on this reservation. Nine days? Nine days. Dude, how many times have we talked about this? You can't just give them like a freaking ridiculously low number to get on the reservation i mean it's not like i could mass text everyone hey guys we got to be here in nine days let's go no and also let's remind like this this is actually before the sioux this is uh 1860 1868 1869 when this is happening so this is before they force this they do the same thing to the sioux so this is setting up uh basically it's just giving crook Well, and all the bands, it's not like they're all one nation. No, they're very scattered. They have very interesting relationships amongst each other. Absolutely correct. It's a laughable policy to have if your actual intention is to get them on the reservation peacefully. Now, 
some do show up because like again they're very they're different people some like the idea of the reservation system most don't so most don't report so crook now has his reasons to go out there but back in washington grant is realizing that crook's order to get all of the apache in nine days onto the reservation or else may not be the best way to go for his peace policy. So Grant sends out another man named Oliver Otis Howard to deal with the Apache, and specifically Cochise. Howard, like Crook, served his country well in the Civil War, and is um, also interesting. This isn't going to be the end of Howard. We're not going to talk about him much in this episode, but a couple people from now, he's going to be a huge part But Howard also kind of agrees with the Apache that they should be able to stay on their land. They should be able to kind of live as they would like. Granted, they can't just continue raiding and murdering all of the time. (laughs) That has to stop. I mean, I think they should be able to stay on their land. But I mean, you guys got to stop killing. All right. I mean. You really got to stop stealing all of the things and anything you can grab like that does have to end. But he's willing to play ball. Crook, however, is incredibly annoyed because he is actually gathering up some Apache and putting them on the reservation. And now Grant just sent out Oliver Otis Howard, who, by the way, is known as the Christian general and thinks quite highly of himself, even though. Um. We'll find out in another episode. He probably shouldn't feel so good about himself. (coughs) So just imagine these two career military men with a lot of pride and a lot of ego are just annoyed that the other one even exists. (laughs) Howard finds Tom Jeffords. You remember Tom Jeffords? I know the name. I can't remember. Just give me a little bit. Cochise's friend. Oh yeah, yeah, the yeah, yeah. Only, the one that went to went and saw him at the end, right? Yeah. The only the only reason the Americans are really able to find Cochise because Jeffers just walked into his camp one day and not the mailman, around. right? Yeah, he's the mailman. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, it was him. Yeah. So upon getting onto the reservation, Howard immediately goes to Tom Jeffords, who tells him, "There's no way you're going to show up in his camp with an attachment of men." It has to be a small group, basically you and me and a few other people. And Howard listens. He only takes 10 men with him, and then they go and find Cochise. Now, Cochise has been kind of playing hokey pokey with his surrender. He says he's going to come in. He never does show up. He says he's going to come in this time. I pinky promise. And then he doesn't show up. And then suddenly some cattle are missing and then he's going to, you know, this time I really, really mean that I'm going to show up. I swear, guys, I swear, I swear, I swear. So Howard believes he can change all that, that he can find a lasting peace. And to his credit, he comes up with an agreement with Cochise. And Cochise, after years of fighting, agrees to it. The deal they come out with isn't that Cochise and his men are going to 
come to the reservation at Canada Alamosa, Howard kind of goes outside his orders and just makes a new reservation. We'll call this the Chiricahua, the Chaconan, or the, the Cochise Reservation. If the main goal is for them just to stay on a plot of land in a reservation, this does it. So he follows his orders, but he doesn't have the authority to necessarily make a new reservation. But this is the agreement that's made between Cochise and the Americans. Howard is so convinced that this reservation will last that he even appoints Tom Jeffords as the agent. So they're like all in, like this is going to work. Howard believes he has just solved the world's problems. <laughs> the, Co- the Apache firmly believe him. They think that this is final. This is what we're going to do because they're able to stay on their own land, which by the way, that land also includes Apache Pass, which is an incredibly important part of the area and really the only place you can freely travel. They didn't want them to get that, though, right? The Americans want control of this very badly. Now, Howard, they still have control of it, and Howard makes them promise, like, seriously, you can't take down Apache Pass, which the fort at Apache Pass is called Fort Bowie. So if I mention that, that's... That's what we're talking about. But let's be honest here. It's the Apache. Maybe Cochise is able to wrangle them down for now, but this could probably be an issue later. Oh, there's also uh, one more condition. Howard says to Cochise, who probably has his hand behind his back with his fingers crossed. Howard goes, you, you seriously have to stop raiding. Like, like really like that that needs to stop none of this is going to work if you keep raiding so please never gonna happen never gonna happen never (laughs) gonna happen whoa 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 i do like that harm i do like that view like i do like that thought of like some apache warriors behind coachy singing that song (laughs) i'm surprised i I didn't see them all giggling yeah, well, they're well. They probably at least smiling with um, some Joker grins. <laughs> now, despite his orders, you'll be shocked to know some Apache continue to raid into Mexico. Do you want to guess who? Geronimo. You dang right. <laughs> he did. Ignores every bit of that treaty and just could not care less, except for on Ration Day, where he's going to keep showing up for Ration Day. Oh, surprise, surprise. Yeah. They even come up with a uh, good little trading system. Now, Jeffords sets up his agency at the Cochise, the Chiricahua Reservation, whatever you would like to call it. And there's a pleasant surprise that trade is actually picked up. The bad news is that everyone kind of knows this was not legally attained territory or <laughs> property. <laughs> I don't know if the cows just had the word Mexico written on them or if they all had sombreros, but it's very obvious that the Apache are still raiding. This annoys George Crook to his core. You have a man who says, if you follow my rules, you will be treated well. But if you don't follow them, I will crush you. And you have Howard, who made this agreement 
by the way, just like across the street from the Mexican border, it seems like. And Jeffords is just kind of turning a blind eye to the rating. And Crook can really do nothing. Luckily for Crook, he he gets transferred in just a little bit. Uh, he's going to have to go to the Great Plains and hunt down the Sioux with George Custer. Right. So Crook disappears for a bit. Howard, by the way, is also long gone. So it's now just Jeffords, and now they're going to bring in a new agent. Now, with all of this happening, Cochise dies on June 8th, 1874. His son, Taza, takes over his father. Taza has been groomed for a while by Cochise, and he was, and he was the natural leader. However, Taza is not his father. He doesn't have the war accolades. He doesn't have the respect. He doesn't have the command. So almost instantly, a rival faction by the Apache, by a man named Skinya and his brother Poinsene. Taza is allied, is allied by his brother Nightshay. If you remember Nightshay, he was actually one of the kidnapped, uh, he was the kidnapped boy, uh, Cochise's son that was taken in the tent. Yeah. So he's now popping into the story, but he's only about 20 years old. He's still pretty young. But he's now, fighting with groups, his brother? No, he's allied with, allied his, brother. with his brother. Okay. Skinya, Poinsen, and his brother Poinsene, and you have Taza and Naiche. Okay. Then they're they're fighting. Or they're 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 rivals. The two groups lobby for influence over the next two years. While some did stay on the Chiricahua reservation, there is a big question on if they still need to be moved. Because remember, Howard just invented right. a reservation. Right. That can't fly. And also, nothing was written down. This is a handshake agreement. Oh, those work out so well all the time. Oh, doesn't it, though? There is some precedent with some of these reservations, so it's not completely dead in the water, but just know that the Americans would really like the Apache to not be in this specific spot. And the Apache would really like to stay on this specific spot. Up to a year after Cotis's death, Geronimo continues to raid into Mexico, but he's not having as much success as they had before. The Mexicans are a little bit more organized. They can put up a little bit of a, of a defense and they are able to kick Geronimo out of Mexico where he kind of settles on the reservation, even though he's not really complying with it. The problem is that the Americans would really like the Apache to be moved. Back in Washington, Congress enacts legislation to remove the Apache from the Chiricahua Reservation. And they're going to move them to another reservation about 70 miles north called the White Mountain Reservation, which actually has a rival band of Apache already sitting on it. <sighs> hey, let's move these guys over here so then they fight, and I guarantee they're not going to stay on the reservation. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's... It's just a cluster. The entire thing is a cluster. I... It's... Uh, I can understand Howard. 
making thinking like, well, if the goal is to keep them on a certain speck of land, they agree to this land. Why not just do it? And then I just I just think it's the Americans and the Apache not understanding the other one's culture and not respecting the other one's culture where the Apache are just going to ignore if they don't want to follow the rules. And the Americans get very frustrated with it. And it's just turning into this big muck of a mess to where now a frustrated Washington is just trying to put them all in one place. And then we can watch them from there. It's one place where everyone needs to be. Now we're going to go back to the power struggle between Taza and Skinya. Taza leads about 180 people where Skinya branches off and he controls about 60. Skinya lives on the reservation, but like just on the edge. And he is the one that is also leading raids into Mexico. Geronimo, with his connections uh, to Cochise, sides with Taza. Though he is also continuing to raid in Mexico whenever they're not kicking him out of Mexico. Near the spring of 1876, a drunk burst of violence from Poinsene. Poinsene, remember, Skinya's brother. Right. Cochise's son. No, no, no the other side, other side. Yeah, the other side. So the rival side we'll focus on. Uh, Poinsene and Skinya get into a drunken fight, which leads to two Apache women being shot and killed by Poinsene. Jeez, what? Yeah. Now, the not that this really matters. They're not necessarily drunk on whiskey. They're drunk on their own liquor called Tisween, which is made from corn. Right. Yeah, I remember us talking about that. Yeah, where it, you have to make in huge batches because it spoils quickly. And if you don't, it yeah, you have to get rid of it. So they're drunk on that. Not that it makes it any better. In an but argument, make... he kills two women because of it. He kills two women. Not only does he kills two women, he goes back to a ranch he recently vil- he recently visited, kills the rancher and the rancher's partner. So now there's four people dead. All in a drunken actions, stupor. All in a drunken argument. The actions are enough to make the public think that there is a full-blown Apache uprising. Based off one guy, one guy, which to be fair, you do hear, okay, they tilled, they killed two Apache and they killed two Americans. What is going on on this reservation? What are you? It's a legitimate question to ask. Yeah. Still allied with his brother, Poinsene, they're still coming to go do some type of damage control. Poinsene is still incredibly angry and they attempt to reach out to Jeffords. But Poinsene at this point just seems to can't help himself. And he lets it known that he fully intends to kill Jeffords. Obviously, the meeting abruptly ends. Now, Skinya, after this meeting, I probably thinks he's a bit out of his element. And maybe the 60 or so people he's leading would be better off underneath Taza and Nietzsche. So Skinny is basically throwing his hands up saying, I can't control my brother. The people I'm following probably need to go over, over to Taza until this gets clears up. So he pushed them to the other side. In a meeting that Skinya makes with Taza, in the meeting there is Taza and Skinya, there is Taza and Nietzsche. 
And on the other side, there is still Skinya and Poinsene. After Poinsene refuses to live under the control of Taza, a fight breaks out when Nightshade pulls his rifle and kills Skinya. Oh no, Skinya. He wasn't even so, doing anything. So the one that's trying to like bridge this together is now just dead by the rival faction and Gojis' youngest son. <sighs> Taza, in defense, shoots at Poisoné, eh, but only severely wounds him. He's going to be out for a while, but I believe he does live. In the aftermath of this, the new Indian agent comes, and his name, we've, we've encountered him before, his name is John Clum. Clum. Sounds familiar. Clum. Mm-mm. He will be the mayor of Tombstone. Interesting. So Clum is very young. He's 22 years old. He's very arrogant, but he is doing or will be doing at least a pretty decent job for the Apache uh, in this huge cluster that has been the Apache Reservation. Only days after Skinya is killed and Poinsene shows up, that is when Clum officially comes to tell them that they need to move. What a fantastic time to have to tell them this news. Taza believing that there is no other option but to move his people to White Mountain. And initially, he goes to Geronimo and they talk, and Geronimo even gives a speech, basically agreeing with him. But then Geronimo has to think. And he doesn't really want to go. So he finds his buddy who. And they bolt to Mexico because they don't want to stay on the reservation at all. They flee. And for the rest of the winter of 1876, the army basically chases them for the first time. So Clum really needs to stop Geronimo and he needs to do so quickly. Luckily for Clum, Geronimo gives him an incredibly easy opportunity to do something because Geronimo with all of these stolen cattle and livestock from Mexico still shows up to ration day to trade. Just delivering himself on a silver platter. Now Clum lets it known to Geronimo that he would like to have a meeting with him on one of the ration days. Said it's going to be peaceful, that we don't need to worry. We just, we just need to talk things out for a bit. While Geronimo shows up to this invitation, and Clum, sitting inside of his cabin, has Geronimo approach him. Clum comes out to his deck, and the two men talk for a bit. And when Clum says, by the way, you need to get on the White Mountain Reservation, Geronimo becomes very, very upset. And he goes for his pistol. Oh, jeez. When Clum then gives the gives a motion that 80 soldiers hiding in the brush are now here to arrest Geronimo. So Geronimo goes from thinking it's just him and Clum and a few other officers to now being completely surrounded with many guns pointed at him. Clum is going to put him under arrest immediately. And the look Geronimo gave him would never leave Clum. Clum would tell in, 19, in 1932, 
quote, I have had many looks of hate in my long life. Never one once so vicious and so vengeful. But Geronimo does allow himself to be arrested. And that is where we're going to have to leave it today. Have I confused you yet? That was a lot of background. I can only imagine what's coming. It's set up nicely. Uh, what I will say for the second episode, it's not as politics driven. <laughs> so <laughs> It's straight revenge and killing. It's very straightforward what's about to happen next, but it's also very entertaining what happens next. So what are your thoughts on Geronimo so far? Um, Does he act? He acts faster than he thinks, huh? That's correct. Well, I don't know. I don't know if my wife and kid, I don't know if my wife and kids died. I'd, I mean, if I had a wife and kids and they died by someone, I'd probably stop thinking and just want death and destruction. He is very impulsive. Um, you just saw it for his, I'm going to call it the first breakout because we have, we have a couple <sighs> of them to cover. So yeah, he and who kind of have this immediate bond with each other. But every uh, time you say that, I get so confused. You're like, he and who? Uh, I don't know who. <laughs> he and, and who? Who? Exactly. who? <laughs> Who's on second? What's on first? <laughs> <laughs> we need to do the Abbott and Costello. No, not Abbott. Is it Abbott and Costello? Why do I not remember that? Anyway, one of them. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a very confusing time. Boy, did it take me a while to just write that last, what, 20 minutes of the episode. (laughs) But anyway, I think that's where we'll leave it today. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. Yep, it is Abbott and Costello, by the way. I just looked it up. It's Abbott and Costello. Hey, we did it. You did it. You did it, Eric. Woo, let's go. I did it. Fireworks. All right. (laughs) And with that. (laughs) I have nothing else. I'm Eric. I'm Matt. Catch you for part two.